0: Well, good morning again, friends. If you would, go ahead and find your seats. (coughs) Well, it's good to see you all. Thank you again so much for gathering this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into uh, this sanctuary this morning. If you're gathered for cross-point at home, thanks for inviting the, the church into your living room. Thanks for for tuning in. As has been made mention of already, yeah. Uh, thank you for uh, braving the, the cold. Um, if I could have it my way, i like, this is awesome weather. But I don't know if you agree with that. But I'm 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 all in on on this. I um, actually didn't know that we'd even get to this Sunday. Thought the world was going to end. The Lions won a playoff game last week, and I just thought, man, it's like over. But anyway, um. So I digress, but. Uh, great to see you all. Um, this morning, we are continuing in this series to the month of January called Seeking Mishpat. Mishpat's the Hebrew word for justice. I'll explain that more uh, in a moment. But again, thank you for gathering. If you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint or we've never been introduced, my name is Jamie. And it's my joy to get to serve as one of the pastors and to open up God's word uh, with you all this morning. And with that, I wanna invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 58. So if you brought a Bible, please turn there. There are Bibles in the pews uh, in front of you. You can grab one of those. If you don't have a Bible, take that home with you. You can also take your phone out and scan the QR code in the, the pew in front of you, and it'll bring up a menu where you can click sermon notes, and the text is there, as well as anything I put up on the screens, or you can access that at this thisiscp.church. Um, but I wanna take a moment to to read this in its entirety, as we get this word from God, he he goes to his servant, Isaiah, this prophet, and says, I need you to bring this word to my people about these themes of of justice and what what this looks like. And so if you're able, I want to invite you, please stand as I read God's word this morning. Isaiah chapter 58. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression to the house of Jacob, their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist? Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Verse six, is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer and you shall cry and he will say, here I am. And if you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach and restorer of streets to dwell in. Verse 13, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath the delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, friends, there's a story that I ran across a few months ago. It's a story that, that really moved me as I read about this, as I heard a little snippet of it, um, and then began researching it a bit more. And it tells the story of three men. Their names are Alexei Anaken- Anonenko, Valerie Bespalov, and Boris Baranov. These three men, likely maybe unknown names to you as they're unknown names to me some time ago, were living in and around a nuclear power plant in 1986. Not only living around that area, but working there at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Ukraine. And it was the spring of 1986 and the day was April 26 when a massive explosion occurred, and these men amongst others who were working there just found themselves caught up in this rescue mission of trying to figure out like what to do because there had been an explosion unlike anything that the world had ever seen. That the nuclear fallout, like the radiation that was going out from this place, scientists would say was 400 times stronger than the atomic bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. And so there's this massive issue going on. People are scrambling, trying to figure out like what they're going to do. How can we contain this? Fires are blazing. And so as you can imagine, people are rushing in. There's emergency crews. Some of you are old enough to remember uh, this uh, occurring, right? Some of you are like 86. What are the 80s? But anyway, um, but this was this massive tragedy that was happening and. Scores of people died, and hundreds more late later on, and they're worried obviously about some of the, the fallout and the contamination and fire trucks are brought in, and they're dumping water, and they just continue and for days, this went on. and what began to happen was that various rooms, as you can imagine, were filling with water, um, and as they filled with water, they began to become like literally filled with like the nuclear radiation and then on it was the end, a few days after, so we're talking about by April 30th or so. Uh, some of the scientists are getting together and they're trying to, to think through, like, what can they do? And then they had this horrific sort of discovery. They realized that one of the things that was set up there is that when the nuclear power plant and the reactors and the core, like when they're all functioning as they should, they had to be kept cool. And so underneath, beneath this massive thick layer of concrete, underneath the whole thing, beneath all four reactors, was a five million gallon pool. And that water would be there to to keep the temperatures regulated. And it was a, a good thing. But as the fires continue to rage and this toxic right material is beginning to permeate throughout, the fires are getting so white hot that they're beginning to melt the concrete. And as they begin studying this, they they realize they have not any time to waste or spare, because the fear is that if that nuclear material continues to melt through the concrete and somehow would make its way into that 5 million gallons of pool, w- pool, that once it touched that water, it would cause another explosion that would make what took place on April 26th pale in comparison. That at a minimum, it would be literally hundreds of years before life would be, Uh, in like the areas would be habitable once again, and some of the worst predictions that we would be tens of thousands of years for various parts of Europe to even be uh, living, like to be habitable in the future. And in that particular moment, these names that I read to you, these three men raised their hand and volunteered for what was likely at the time they would believe to be Uh, definitely a a, a suicide mission. There's no other way to, to say it. Like they were willing to give their lives to put on a scuba suit with one scuba lantern to try and make their way through the rooms that had now filled with this toxic radiation water so that they could find a valve in the dark that would allow them to open it up and allow that 5 million gallon pool to begin to empty out to avoid this even bigger nuclear explosion. And so with literally everyone in that surrounding area and much of the surrounding areas just waiting with anticipation, these three men, with nothing, seriously, nothing more than just scuba gear, all right, on themselves. They submerged themselves in the poisonous, toxic waters. And as the story is told, uh, even the scuba lantern that they had um, would occasionally just go out and they'd be in utter blackness and darkness. And so they made their way through some of these rooms to get to an area where they believed there were these valves that could be opened up, but they had no real idea where they were And imagine just the, I mean, the enveloping darkness, the panic, the heat, knowing that any moment now, it could melt through that concrete floor. And they tell the story that literally as the lantern is flickering about to go out, one of them spots what he believes to be that valve. And in that particular moment, they make their way in the darkness and they're able to get it cranked open. And the waters begin to recede. The waters begin to pour out. And there's footage of these three guys as they eventually emerge up out of the darkness and out into the air. And you can imagine, like, they are just elated. They are jumping up and down. People are hugging them, which seems like a bad idea. But anyway, they're hugging them, right? Um, and these guys, I mean, just the, the joy, the, the relief, the, the, the sense of like accomplishment, even though it likely what they believed was gonna cost them everything. Now, miraculously, these guys lived, which I don't quite understand. But you think about that picture, like what would cause somebody to say, I'll go. At great risk to myself, knowing that they would likely die they were willing to enter into that dark because they were willing to submerge themselves in that toxic radiation, that, that water, in order to spare other people's lives. And friends, as we've been in this series, one of the things we've been looking at is anytime we see flourishing, it's because somebody was willing to pay a cost that there's a willingness to open oneself up to being wounded, to be vulnerable, to take on a matter of suffering, not because we just love pain, but we know this anytime we love and care for a a person, a friend, a family member, a coworker, a neighbor, a child, whoever it might be. Like when we open ourselves up, we are opening ourselves up to be wounded, we're vulnerable. There's a level of suffering. And that's the only way it's gonna lift somebody up to a place of flourishing. As we think about this call as a church, and you have that picture that's so moving of these men being willing to go and do that, they willingly put themselves in harm's way. They willingly open themselves up to ultimate vulnerability, a willingness to actually lose their lives so that other people can flourish. I wanna ask the question like, how can we become the kinds of people that are willing to suffer, who are willing to be vulnerable? I'm sure it's most likely that that your story and my story will not look like these men who became known as the Chernobyl Three. And if it's never that dramatic, how might we still be the kinds of people who will say like, "I'll go. I'll lay down my preferences, I'll be inconvenienced, I'll, I'll give of my time, I'll give of my money, I'll, I'll give of my resources. I will be willing to do this so that other people might flourish. And that, my friends, is what gets at the heart of this Hebrew word mishpat that occurs over 200 times in the Old Testament. This idea of a right ordering, not just justice in the individual courtroom sort of sense, but a true flourishing what the Hebrew scriptures speak of as well as like a shalom. And so this morning, friends, we're looking at this idea of of seeking mishpat. And we've looked at various ways this idea of justice plays out. And this morning we're looking at this calling to be the church that we would pursue justice as it pertains to the sanctity of life. And as we've been doing this, a variation of this series over the last six years, some years, like last year, I preached on the sanctity of life in a way that might be more typical of what we might think of in a Christian sort of evangelical culture, and that is about life in the womb. And how do we care for and protect those that are most vulnerable as it pertains to this tragedy of abortion? And in the sermon notes, if you want to hear what I had to say on, on that and where, you know how to be, think about some of the, those things, like it's linked out there. But this morning, I wanna continue to pursue this idea, but it's important that we have a more holistic view as well, that it includes life in the womb, but it also is about the sanctity, the sacredness of life outside of the womb. And this is not an either or, this is a both and, like we should care about both of these things. And so that's something that we've just kind of gotten into this pattern of doing, even as a church of like, some years we'll speak to more of one aspect of it and another years to another. And so if you're wondering like, why is he not saying anything about life in the womb? There's 45 minutes of me saying stuff last year. You can go listen to that, okay? Uh, but for this morning, I wanna look at Isaiah 58 in particular and see how does it inform? I believe if we understand what's going on in Isaiah 58, if we begin to grasp this, it will inform how we can become the kinds of people that seek Mishpat. And it starts with a massive problem. So look back with me, verses one to five, that God comes on the situation and he's basically saying, okay, Isaiah, I need you to speak these words. Because just a couple chapters prior in 50, chapters 56, verse one, we hear this called a Mishpat. Thus says the Lord, and it's been said, Throughout the 50 plus chapters up until that point in Isaiah, but here's just one instance of it. Thus says the Lord, keep Mishpat, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness, my righteousness be revealed. And so that's the calling. But by the time we get to chapter 58, God is saying, I need you to get their attention. Do you notice the language? He's like, Isaiah, cry aloud. I need you to scream. I need you to shout it out. I need you to hold nothing back. I need you to literally look like a crazy person trying to gather the attention of my people. Lift up your voice, it says, like a trumpet. I mean, so that's the imagery there, right? Sound the alarm. Let anyone who has ears to hear, let them hear. that like the Lord has something to say through his servant, Isaiah. And it's important that we pay attention and dial in. Declare to my people their transgression to the house of Jacob, their sins. And so you're like, okay. And at that point, I think one might be expecting to see, okay, what are their sins? And probably we'd tend to think of like some of the obvious things, right? There might be like, oh, are they engaged in, in theft? or are, are they stealing? Is there sexual immorality? What's the thing that God is gonna call them out on? And what he calls them out on are none of those things, but rather the fact that they are fasting and the way that they're gathering as a church and the way they're going about their religious activities. I mean, verse two says, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. Like, well, what's the problem in that? But then we get these words, as if, as if they were a nation that did righteousness they're operating with a mindset like oh we're doing the right things and the lord should be pleased with us and we'll just keep gathering together for these feasts and festivals and we'll come into the temple and we'll make the sacrifices and we'll even go the lord does speak of fasting on occasion but he speaks far more about feasting and sabbath and they're like hey we're going to even go further than what god says like we're going to make sure that we're fasting we're going to live these lives of deprivation and says this and did not forsake the judgment of their god they ask me They ask of me righteous judgment. They delight to draw near to God. Like it seems like they're doing the right thing, but they are missing the heart of God. They're missing what James would speak of in James chapter one, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphan and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You have a group of people here that Isaiah is being summoned by the Lord to say, you need to summon them, sound the alarm, blow the trumpets, do anything and everything to get their attention because they are going along with all these churchy sort of religious things and are giving the appearance of like they've got it all together and they've actually taken great comfort in that and they're encouraging one another and he's like, they are missing the mark. That sometimes the most dangerous place to be is sometimes in religious gatherings, not because God isn't honored in what we're doing, but it is possible for us to miss the mark, to think that, ooh, somehow we're putting like God in a spot where he would owe us something. And that's what they're engaged in. The theologian, Bruce Waldke says, you wanna know what righteousness is? You wanna know what justice is? He says, the righteous are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves to the advantage of their community. You wanna know if we're like being a righteous church? To what extent are we willingly disadvantaging ourselves so that other people can flourish? To love God and to love our neighbor. But the wicked are those who are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. We're now in the realm of exploitation. And so verse three then says this, they pose a question. Like their words are kind of summarized here. And it says this, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you, you fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. They're looking at their life of deprivation and they're like, Lord, you didn't even tell us that we really had to fast, but we're like, we're going to a next level. Like you should be pleased with us. And they're asking the question like, what's what in the world, man? Like you don't even see it. You're not paying attention. Like where's, where's the blessing? And God is needing to remind them through his servant there's a way that you can have the life of flourishing and of blessing, but the way you're going about it is all wrong. Your focus, really, what they're engaged in is an attempt to manipulate God. If we do these things, then He owes us. If we keep going to church, we keep reading our Bibles, we keep doing these things, which are all beautiful practices. I'm so I'm not anti those things. We're reading the Bible right now. We're gathered together at church. These are good, beautiful things. But when something shifts in our hearts and our minds where we think, well, God owes us, look at all I'm doing for him, we have missed it. Perhaps you're familiar with this story. Um, it's, a, it's a old little like fable parable told by the late theologian and pastor Charles Spurgeon, uh, where he invites us to talk about carrots, which is where we all thought we were going next, right? We need to talk about carrots, okay? Um, and in this, he gives the, this story. And it's one, even if you're familiar with it, I think it's re, worth revisiting. It gets at the heart of this, this idea of like, who are you doing this for? And so he tells the story, let me read it to you. He says, once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in the land. And one day there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot and he took it to his king and he said, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect for you. And tells us the king, he was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as they turned to go, the king said, wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of land to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and he went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this. And he said, huh, if that's what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? So the next day the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. And he bowed low and he said, my Lord, I breed horses and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and he said, thank you. And he took the horse and he simply dismissed him. And the nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, well, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse that idea where we're like, oh, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna earn this or I'll get the affection of God or I can manipulate things in this way. God will have none of it. So he lays out this problem and he's asking us to consider like, who are you ultimately serving? Are you loving God and loving neighbor? When to talk about like a right ordering, a true justice mishpat, like that's, that's how Jesus boils it all down. And so he invites us into these pursuits. If that's laid out as the problem, look with me at the pursuits in verses six to seven. It tells us here, and it uses this different imagery again. It says, is not this the fast that I choose? He's like, all right, you wanna talk about fasting? You wanna talk about pursuits, a direction? What are you to seek? He's like, let me lay it out for you. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to see those untied, to to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Now, again, and the, the Bible, so as it does, speaks of lots of like farming, agricultural, kind of agrarian references and images. What they're referring to of a yoke is what you see on the screen here, right? Like it's what two animals, likely two oxen, would have placed upon their shoulders. And that U shape, that would be dropped down and their head would go in and then that would be put up there and then another oxen next to it. And they would, they would bear that burden and they would walk and step together to, to plow and to engage in all of these activities, right? And it's that image that God speaks through his servant Isaiah and says, okay, you wanna talk about like what I'm about? He says, I wanna loose the bonds of wickedness. So when you see wickedness, when you see brokenness, he's like, I wanna see that not continue to like ramp up and increase, but to loose it. And it says to undo the straps of the yoke. So at one level, what God is communicating is like, drop that piece that goes around the neck. Whatever is holding that up, I want you to, to f- look to free that group of people, that individual, realizing that there are people across a variety of ways, right? Like, let's put in some present-day context. For one, if we think like slavery is a thing in the past and doesn't exist, there is so much human trafficking that's taking place. And that's not just a problem in other countries, though it exists. It's a problem here in this country. It's a problem in this state. It's a problem in this particular community of Central Florida. What does it look like to see people freed from that? What does it look like to see people who are oppressed by by poverty, who who don't have opportunities for a good education? What does it look like for the church to step into those places? And at one level, it's an image of like, okay, let's free those people. But the Bible, one of the beautiful things that it does is it, it speaks to a couple different aspects of this freedom. Look back at verse six. So undo the straps of the yoke, yes and amen, right? So you and I, what it means is we should have people that we know that we're ministering to, that we're close with, that we would know them by name enough to say, like to, to actually like, have our lives sort of interwoven together in a way that you actually might have opportunities to see them freed from that yoke. And yet there's also a call at a structural systemic level as well to break every yoke. So what God is communicating is saying, hey, I want you to free them from this. And then I want you to obliterate, smash that yoke to pieces so that it will never, ever, ever again enslave or oppress anyone. So even in a lot of our political discourse and things, like we, we tend to sometimes go one way of like, it's all about the individual or we all talk structural systemic and there can be battles over those things. And it's like, which is it? Yes, it's both. We can't talk the structural and systemic without actually ever knowing a real person with a real name, flesh and blood. But it's also a call to like know and love and to serve people and also realize that there are broader systemic structural things that continue to play out. And the calling of the church, what Jesus is saying to us is like, undo the straps and break the yoke. Now, I do not pretend to know like how that exactly going to happen, but it's just telling us like that's the call and part of the beauty of the body of Christ is us trying to figure that out together. And then verse seven, it says this, continues He starts to get with a little more specificity here. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor, it also can be translated as the, 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 uh, the, the wandering poor. The poor man is wandering into your house. And when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself, but notice the language that from your own flesh, there can be this great tendency again to just put people on this other camp, right, and do these things. And the Lord is calling us to say, "Hey, I do want you to be involved." And sometimes that that can be done from afar, and there's some some ways that that can be a really beautiful thing, but but also there's, there is a personal call. I mean, when he says like, to share your bread, I mean, we tend to be like, oh yeah, I'll order you a sandwich, I'll send you something, Uber, whatever. Like, that's all great. I'm glad we can do those things. And, and yet in that day and age, like you would have made that bread. You would have gathered the ingredients. You would have done that. Like there would have been, a, again, there's another cost. Like, oh, it's a big deal to, to make this bread that's gonna help sustain your family. And then you're giving it to somebody or you're inviting the homeless poor into your actual home when you see the naked to cover him, it says to not hide yourself from your own flesh. It's an invitation there to see like, oh, this is a brother or sister made in the image and likeness of God, just like I am. These are fellow image bearers, the Imago Dei. And then Jesus would take this even further because there's a call really like, do you see other people as your own flesh and blood? Do you, do you see them as part of this shared humanity? Like, Hey, when God calls you to love your neighbor as yourself, like, oh, okay, how would I care for myself? Okay, now go and do likewise. And Jesus then in Matthew 25, as he's speaking of this day of judgment, he says these words, he says, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Does this sound like Isaiah 58? Likely this was on Jesus's mind, right? As he is declaring this. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the disciples have, right? I think an understandable response. It says the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the King will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so the calling is like, oh, do we see that? This is our own flesh and blood. And the scary thing with Jesus says, I didn't read these verses right now for sake of time, but if you were also to continue reading in Matthew 25, there are those that neglect to do those things. Jesus is like, you had opportunity to love me, to serve me to showcase, like real faith does result in these things. They don't earn you anything, but they they are a demonstration that you have and you possess this saving faith. And he says, away from me. And so the question becomes like, how can you and I then like, what opportunities do we have to participate in Mishpat? And some of these things are going to be things that just, come along in life, ways that you're gonna have opportunities to, to love and to, to care for people. Um, some, it's not always gonna be organized and you know, you go sign up for something. Sometimes it's just gonna be like, do you have eyes to see? Ask the Lord, Lord, will you give me eyes to see? Give me ears to, to hear like, yes, somebody said this, but to kind of like do some redemptive listening and realize like, oh, there's something bigger going on there and to move toward people as God has moved toward us in Christ. And so there's a couple things. And like, I've been, like all of this, they have been talking about like leading to this moment of like with great enthusiasm coming to you guys today to say I have some exciting things to to share. And so at one level, some of it is reminder, but some of it also is new. Like if you go to our website right now, there is a, at the top uh, on the, the menu, um, there's the navigation menu. There's the thing that just says Mishpot. And you can go there and you'll see a page that looks like this. And there are opportunities. These are not all the things that represent what our church is involved in. But these are a few things. And as you consider like, hey, where are ways to get involved? Like there's opportunities to come along families who are engaged in foster care through this work called Commission 127. There's information there, all right? There's a great video of Kim and Devin Lalonde that you can go and watch and you're, oh, here's how a family in our church is engaging in this. And you're like, well, I'm not called the foster care. That, That may be for the time, right? But you can serve and love those who are engaged in it. There's opportunities to be involved at the work in Altamont elementary, there's opportunities to talk about like seeing people, seeing women freed from human trafficking. It's a worker Samaritan village. You want to get involved there. Orlando Children's Church. These and others are ways that we've been involved in the community. And we don't say that as like, oh, pat ourselves on the back. More of just like, hey, like what things are out there for us to get involved in? And many of you have done that. And so thank you and praise God for that. Beautiful thing to see the lobby filled with Christmas presents that went to kids who otherwise wouldn't have had presents just up the road within walking distance of where we are right now at Altamont Elementary. This Title I school that has over 100 kids each week that uh, have a backpack sent home with them on the weekends because otherwise they wouldn't have enough food to eat. And to see so many of you continuing to give toward that and help put those backpacks together. And those are just some of the things. And then, and this is what I'm like, super excited to be able to share with you guys as well. One of the things we've been praying for, if you can remember, there was this time called January, 2020, and we were all naive and innocence. And we were doing a version of this series and you all gave sacrificially to see, to help see a church planted and sponsorship, in partnership with Compassion International. And the goal of this was to to see a church planted and a community development center built and that kids would be brought in from the surrounding areas and villages, all right? And that there would be opportunity then as those kids get registered with compassion to to receive sponsorship so that they can be fed and they can be clothed, they can be educated and ultimately be taught about the gospel. And so we made plans for that. You all gave for it. We expected you know, maybe six, seven months later, we'd be matched with the church and then March rolled around. And we don't have to revisit all of that, but you guys know, right? And so we've been in this holding pattern and then just this waiting and wondering, and understandably, like lots of things got, got shut down and trying to do work in other countries and Compassion had to go through a lot of things in their own organization. But we just recently got final word that couple things that are super cool. We have been matched with a church planner. Uh, this church has begun the, the work of being planted. So we praise God for that. Uh, we had a meeting, uh, Jessica, who serves in numerous roles, but Jessica Green, but one of it is outreach. Her and I met with a guy, our Compassion representative this week. And he began sharing too, that one of the things that they've been able to do is already start registering these kids. So we thought we were still gonna have to wait much longer, but we have been matched with the church in La Paz, just outside of La Paz, Bolivia. Um, and so we are super excited about that. We are actually going to be able to have, we're, Targeting a date of April 7th, which is the Sunday after Easter for a specific compassion Sunday. At this point, there are almost 120 kids that they've registered that will be available for opportunities to sponsor. You don't, it's not a pressure thing. You don't have to do that. But just to give you some context, right? Most Sundays here, we have 70 or 80 like little kids running around, and you guys are like, there's a lot of kids, right? There are 120 of these kids. We're all in need, and we have the, the first opportunity as a church to say, like, hey, what would it look like for us to give 40 some bucks or whatever it is a month to see kids sponsored? And then in the years ahead, to be able to have opportunities to even have church trips down there for us to mutually learn from one another, share together, and you could actually meet the kid that you have been sponsoring. And so all this, we we praise God for this. Like we're gonna get to go to this area. It's that one little, no, it's not. I have no idea where it is, all right? But um, uh but we are so thrilled how God has provided this. And so we think about mishpat, like this is just one of the things. So sometimes it's a long, long plane ride away or sending letters and funds to a kid far, far away. And sometimes it's right up the road and everywhere in between. And so friends, as we engage in this, I just wanna encourage us to keep on going. And I wanna explore for a moment too, like, what helps us keep on going? And at one level, it's just the promises that, that God makes. As we look at verses eight to 12, there's a bit of this, this pattern. There's kind of like God keeps saying like, all right, these things are gonna happen. Like if you're doing this, then here will be the results. Not in some sort of like prosperity gospel nonsense, but more in a, in a, a realization like, oh, if these are the things that move the heart of God and we're made in God's image, well, of course, these are gonna lead to things that like bring us life and joy. And so there's a set of promises. And so I just want to read again, verses eight to 12, it says, as we engage in Mishpat, then your light shall break forth like the dawn. Your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. I mean, it's promising light that there'd be a healing Like there's something at a soul level healing, I think that takes place when we stop focusing on self and realize like, oh my goodness, like here's fellow image bearers that we get to move toward, right? The Lord says, the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard, meaning he's gonna be our protection. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. How great is that? Like get the Lord's presence, all right? If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and spe- speaking weak- wickedness, he's talking about like all the ways that like we oppress one another. Apparently, even these people were fasting, and it was leading like they they were all hangry basically. Um, I think is what's going on here, and they're just like they're they're getting they're picking fights and they're quarreling and they're not handling this well, though they think they're holy and righteousness for it. It's like no, like you'll stop this pointing the finger, all right. And if you satisfy the desire of the afflicted, it says, then your light, speaks of light again, shall rise in the darkness. And I love this line, your gloom be as noonday. And not every day looks the same, but most days by noonday, the darkness has receded. There's a brightness, there's a lightness, middle of the day. And he's saying your gloom will go that way. I'm not saying it solves all of our thing. But I do have to wonder that if in our hyper individualistic culture, where it's constantly more inward focused, more inward looking, and some of just the, the despair and the discouragement that we carry, I wonder how much of that would be like the gloom, the noon that like that just goes away when we begin to say, oh, I get to love God and love other people. It continues. It says, the Lord will guide you continually satisfy your desire in scorched places, make your bones strong. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. I mean, we're getting guidance, we're getting satisfaction, we're getting strength, like all of these things. Ray Ortland in his commentary on the book of Isaiah, particularly on this chapter says it this way. Do you want God to answer your prayers? Be his answer to someone else's prayers. Do you want God to come in his immediacy and say to you, here I am, Get close to someone who needs you and say, here I am. Here's the paradox at the center of truth. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Almost nothing in our consumerist American culture encourages us to believe that, but it just happens to be the way life works. Why? Because God, friends, this is so great. God is a happy giver, an intense lover, a relevant helper, and He wants us to share in His joy. He doesn't give us Isaiah 58 here in the calling to Mishpat throughout the scriptures to rob us of joy. He's saying, no, these are the things that make God's very heart come alive, that he is a happy giver, an intense lover, a relevant helper. And he's like, you're made in my image and you're living most true to how he's designed you and I individually, but also collectively to be his people when we're doing those things. It's no wonder that it's in those places that we find joy. And so this call to seek Mishpat, it's not seeking being miserable, it's actually seeking our deep gladness while we seek to do good to our neighbor and bring glory to God. Like all of those things come together when we do this. And then verse 12, I think just gives a picture. If we could be known as a church for these things, like what if this was said about us and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations to be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of streets to dwell in. We can't do that on our own. We can't do that in the flesh. We can't do that just even as as our one local congregation, but we get to be part of it. And then it might be said of Jesus's capital C church, rather than being known for the, the infighting and the focus on self and all the things that divide. What if it was like, no, we're on this mission of mishpat together so we can see things repaired, renewed, restored. And so friends, as we think about that, It could be very dangerous though, again, as we conclude with the last two verses, to simply substitute, okay, we're not gonna get into the fasting. We're not gonna, as far as, not that that's a bad thing, but we're not gonna do these things to make it seem like God, you know, believe that God owes us. We can trade out like one grouping of like religious behavior for another. We could make going to serve the poor and doing this and signing up for a sponsor child, like all of that, a thing, again, that's a mentality that would speak to, oh, well, now God owes me. I must be in his good graces cause I'm doing this. And we miss the heart of God. It's why I believe this chapter ends the way that it does in verse 13 to 14. It's a call back to Sabbath. It's a call back to a deep rest. It's a call back to, to reflect and to have a day. Yes, one day a week where we remember who we are in Christ, but it's also Sabbath as a mentality to carry with us each and every moment. And so verse 13 says, if you turn your back, if you turn your, your, turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, that's part of the problem. And call this, but call the Sabbath the delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then verse 13 says this. It's again another, like, if then, then you shall take delight in the Lord. Like this is a gift that the Lord has given to us, both a day as Sabbath but Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, that what we're made for is ultimately to enter into his Sabbath rest. That's what we get to delight in. It says, then I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you. You and I have a deep spiritual hunger and the Lord is saying, I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's this reminder again, what Christ has done for us, that he has achieved this ultimate Sabbath rest this group of people started out saying, well, we're gonna deprive ourselves in order to earn something from God or to manipulate God and his will. And what we're seeing is like, it's not a call to that. It's actually a move from this desperation to ultimate delight. The more you and I delight in the fact that we are sons and daughters of the King, the more we will be freed up to love and serve other people. The more you and I realize that right now, if you're in Christ, the Lord himself is rejoicing over, he's delighting over you with loud singing. Even amidst all of your and my mess ups and shame and rebellion and stupidity and like all of it, the Lord, because you're in Christ, he delights over you right now. And the more that grips our hearts, the more we will loosen our grip And what we view as our schedules, our time, our resources, our money, and we will live open-handed as Jesus was open-handed to us. The way we might be moved to hear these three men's names who we can hardly pronounce as the Chernobyl three and think, wow, that's amazing. To realize that Jesus has done something even far more profound, that God himself literally entered into the mess of this world, completely submerged himself in it, that everything that was toxic that should have killed us was instead put on him, that that's the cup of the father's wrath that he drank, so that you and I could be brought in. Like he was literally crushed. It was no like, well, you might die. He literally was crushed. He died. Read Isaiah 53, just a few chapters before this. He was crushed for our iniquities. Realize it's this same Jesus that uses the image of yoke and says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden then I will give you rest and take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isaiah 58, this call to Mishpat, it's not to burden us with more. It's an invitation to the way of Jesus, the one who's already taken the ultimate burden. And by going to the cross, what he did is say, what you had to carry, was death and shame, separation. He has freed us from that. And by his resurrection, he has obliterated the yoke. Because of that, we can now rest. We can have a freedom. We can be the kinds of people that would engage in this work of justice of seeking Mishpat, not to earn anything, it's already been earned. We live now in glad response to what King Jesus has done. So let me pray for us as we continue in worship. Heavenly Father, thank you. For these words, thank you for your truth. Jesus, we thank you for all that you have accomplished. Thank you for the rest that we have in you. And I pray that we would delight in you. And the more that we delight in you, I pray that it would free us to be the kinds of people who seek to do God your will, that we would believe that the best possible way to live is by bringing God you glory, living for the good of our neighbor. And in that place, we actually experience just a deep gladness and joy. Forgive us for the times where we believe the lies of the enemy, where we believe we have to make it about us to find life. So lead us in your kindness, lead us in repentance. Help us to rest in the finished work of Christ. And may we be a church that does resolve to live, God, for you and for your kingdom. Would you see fit by your grace to, to use us in the months and the years ahead? God, we thank you for your provision, the partnership in Bolivia. Lord, I have no idea all that that's gonna bring, but we are excited. We thank you for this opportunity. We pray for, even now for those, those kids down there that will have the opportunity to get to know. Lord, would you work in and through them? Would they teach us much? God, would it be a relationship that is so mutually beneficial that we would both come to deeper understanding the gospel because you have brought us together. And so God, we thank you for all that you're doing. We pray that you would work for your glory and our joy. We pray in Christ's name, amen.